Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property. This goes out every Thursday night on our YouTube channel. And of course, I'm Peter Switzer. On tonight's show, we talk to Sarah Hunter, BIS Oxford Economics Economist, and she passes judgment on whether we can trust the house price rises. Are they statistically right? And we'll also ask her, does the economy need tax cuts to get it growing again? Which of course would help the property sector as well. And then we talked to Adrian Harrington from the stellar property business Charter Hall and discover how you can play property without actually going to auctions and hanging out with real estate agents. It's something that investors in property should have a real good look at. And finally, we talked to the CEO of Mortgage Choice, Susan Mitchell, and asked, is the home loan market improving with the house price rebound going on right now? That's the show. Without any further ado, let's go to Sarah Hunter. Sarah Hunter, BIS, Oxford Economics, Chief Economist, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's just start off with the big picture. What's the uh, economic outlook for the Aussie economy at this point in time, Sarah? Well, it's that still a continuation of that sort of quite sluggish growth, really. Uh, mm. So the, um, on an annual basis, I think that growth is going to pick up to around about 2% a year over the next few months as we go into 2020. But but for us, that's not particularly fast as an economy. So, uh, yeah, potential growth is more like 2.7. So we're undershooting that. And really, uh, there's two big drags that we've got right now. We've been talking about both of them for a while. Uh, one is around consumer spending, um, retail being the, the sort of the big example there. And the other is around residential construction and the housing market. But particularly now, that residential construction piece, that downturn's got a fair way to go yet. And, uh, and it's just going to be a drag on growth until we reach the bottom of the cycle. Okay, now if um, the National Treasurer Josh Frydenberg was wise enough to take your counsel, <laughs> would you suggest to him that maybe bringing those tax cuts forward might be timely and a sensible idea? Well, it's certainly true that some extra fiscal support for the economy would uh, would help. It would drive jobs growth, it would uh, see drive some employment, um, and then that would get into household budgets and, and into spending and beyond. Uh, they've got a few options. One of those is to bring forward those tax cuts. So they're currently penciled to really start kicking in 1st of uh, July 2022. That's quite a way away from now. Yeah. Uh, they brought them forward, that would definitely help. There are other options though. They could look at um, additional support for infrastructure spending. That's something the RBA have been highlighting just recently. Um, but they could also look at uh, current spending as well. So uh, maintenance or uh, you know extra funding for hospitals, hospital building programs, um, education, that sort of thing. So there's, yep. there's a whole range of different uh, facets of fiscal policy they could use uh, to support the economy if they wanted to. And, and do you think that the the um, rate cuts uh, is losing a lot of uh, bang for the buck, and it is in danger of maybe uh, reigniting the house price um, boom? Um, in terms of bang for the buck and the impact it's having on the economy, I think it is a little early to say definitively that that's true. It takes a while for rate cuts to fully feed through. We typically true. think two years from when they cut to seeing the full impact. So we're obviously quite a long way away from that. You know, the first cut was only back in, um, in June, so we're not yeah. even six months out. 
Um, and having said that, there is some evidence internationally that as rates get closer and closer to that zero band or indeed go negative in some place, the, the impact that you get from a, an additional rate cut does fall away. So uh, international experience does suggest that we're probably getting maybe we will see slightly less bang for our buck um, around the, the, uh, the impact. Um, in terms of how it's feeding through to the housing market and house prices, it's definitely one of the supporting factors. I think we've obviously had quite a few that have really underpinned the turnaround we've seen since sort of around May this year. I mean, the, the federal election result and the removal of the sort of uh, concerns around uh, negative gearing and capital gains tax changes, that, that's obviously gone away. The rate cuts, we've also had the changes uh, to the interest rate buffer test that APRA um, asked the banks to apply. That's also fed through as well. So I think there's a number of things that have really come together um, to sort of uh, see a bit, give us a bit of a lift in terms of the housing market, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. So not just rate cuts, but clearly those markets have definitely turned the corner. Okay. There's been a bit of a debate between two groups who try to statistically tell us how much house prices are rising by. First question to you on that subject is, do you believe that house prices in Sydney and Melbourne are on a rebound? Uh, no, I think that there's enough data from enough different sources that, that that looks to be the case. How much of a rebound? Yes, there's there's questions about that. There's many different ways you can actually measure these things, how you take account of uh, the composition of the stock. And just in general, all of the price indices, when you have very low turnover, which we do still have, turnover's picked up a bit. So that's the number of sales in the market. It's picked up a bit, but it's still way below uh, where it was through the boom years. But when you do have very low turnover, inevitably some of this data becomes uh, more inaccurate. It's harder to measure what's happening to the average because one-off sales can have much more of an impact outliers become more important when your volumes are low. But I think there's enough data out there to suggest that yes, we definitely have come off the bottom. There's the various different price indices, there's the auction clearance rates, there's the volumes as well, those are coming back through as well. So I think, um, and some of the how the lending data too seems to support that. So I think uh, we've, we've come off the bottom, we are seeing price rises now. How what what the gain has been since we were at the bottom? That's a, a bit more open to debate. Okay. Over the weekend, the AFR talked about how the house price recovery had led to a surge in building. Now, you guys look at that sort of thing mm. uh, fairly closely. Are you expecting 2020 to be better for housing uh, and property construction? No, we're, we're the opposite. I think we we very definitely think that we've got more declines to run. Uh, so if we look at uh, uh, tracking sort of construction activity, uh, we're very lucky here in Australia because we get pretty good data from the ABS around uh, particularly dwelling approvals. So and and then commencements and then actual construction activity and then when the, the dwellings are completed. We can see in the approvals numbers that though the pace of decline is definitely slowing, um, they're still falling in year on year terms. We think they're going to continue to fall uh, until we get into early 2020. So another 
three, six months from where we are right now. It'll probably look a bit different for uh, detached houses versus um, apartments, but overall, we think there's further, just a little bit further to go on that downturn, and then approvals should start to rebound. But if we're looking at actual construction work to do, we've still got to get through all of the decline that we saw, we've seen in approvals through this year and through last year as well. So mm. there's much further for the construction, residential construction downturn to run. We don't think that activity in terms of construction work done will trough until we get um, into late 2020, probably even early 21. So we're over yep. a, a year away, we think, from the bottom of the cycle. Can I ask you this question? Were the numbers before 2017, mm -hmm. were they very high? And if, if you look at the pullback in construction numbers, how do they compare to the long-term average? Yeah, it's a really good question. So they they were certainly um, they were high, absolutely. They were sort of the highest the highest levels we'd ever seen. But I think it's really important to remember uh, what you're measuring that too. And when you've got strong population growth the way we do have here in Australia, you do have to constantly reset your base in terms of how much construction activity is needed um, year to year just to sort of meet underlying demand, growth in underlying demand. So um, if we look through those the boom years um, when we had approvals on an annualized basis around uh, peaking at 240,000, that was very high um, and at that point in time we were estimating underlying demand was maybe 170, 180,000 dwellings a year. So quite a long way above that. Uh, we've fallen back very sharply. So we've gone from that 240, now we're sitting around about 165, maybe a touch below. Now we estimate with the strength, the continued strength in population growth, the underlying demand means we need to add 195, 200,000 homes every year. Now, of course, obviously it's a cycle. So you, if you can't continue to add 240 when you need 200, that just can't continue. But clearly we need to come back quite a long way from where we are now to get back up to where underlying demand is right now. And as I said, you, we do as a, uh, the way we think about dwellings, we do need to constantly be resetting that level and letting it drift higher naturally in our minds because we've got continued robust population growth. Um, and certainly the migration data and the population data that we have uh, hasn't shown any uh, real significant signs of slowing in uh, recent months. Okay, now what's your outlook for a recession, uh, either globally or in Australia? Are you expecting one 2020 or, or later than that? Uh, so about starting with Australia, because I think that's an easier answer to give, a, a quicker one at least. Uh, no, I'm not expecting to see a recession um, in 2020 or a, a sort of in the medium term through the forecast horizon. I think importantly, we're talking about a lot of drags and a poor growth performance right now. The economy is still growing uh, comfortably uh, at around half a percentage point a quarter as I say, around about 2% uh, a year when you annualise it. That's a long, long way from a recession. So, uh, no, there, I don't expect a recession in Australia. Um, globally, 
certainly there's uh, much more of a, of a risk there. There's certainly risks around the US economy and whether or not they will enter recession and we're seeing quite a sharp slowdown there. And there's certainly some concern around uh, some of the major European economies as well. Um, we're, we're waiting on the data for Q3, but uh, we could uh, see Germany, for instance, in a technical recession when we get that data. Maybe not, they might just avoid it, but if they do, it will be very, it will be a sort of whisker avoidance. Um, so globally, there's more concerns. There's a lot of headwinds that we're facing around US-China trade wars, although perhaps there's some, uh, you know, at least a partial cooling of, of tensions there. There's also headwinds across Europe, Brexit, of course, but there's some other issues as well around the German car sector and how that's spilling through the rest of the region. So. Um, globally, it's a bit more of a murky picture. I'm not expecting a recession in the global economy next year, but certainly the warning signs are at the very least flashing amber and, and in some cases maybe even red. So something I'll be monitoring quite closely and certainly looking at the spillovers to Australia. So if that did materialise, it would uh, be a, a headwind for us to face. But as I said, if we're looking at the strict definition of a recession as two quarters of the economy contracting, we've got a lot of a buffer between where we are now in terms of growth momentum and getting to that stage. Okay. Now, I was on... Um uh, 702 ABC with Phil Clark, the overnight show, early this week, and he said to me, but Peter, you know, the Sydney house price market is a bubble, and he was quite emphatic about that. And I think it's not a bubble, I just think it's a boom. What, have you ever thought about whether the Sydney and even the Melbourne market are bubbles? Well, I, I mean, I think that it's worth keeping in mind that there's a number of quite supportive uh, facets to to Sydney and Melbourne that, that really do underpin uh, those house prices. I mean, yes, they are they're very elevated and the household debt levels are very elevated. And it's certainly true that if I look from uh, where I'm sitting right now, no matter what the degree of bounce back in prices that we've just seen, if I'm looking forward uh, through 2020 and beyond, I think it's going to be relatively subdued price growth compared to what we saw through the absolute definite boom years, uh, particularly 15, 16 and 17. Um, but those underlying fundamentals are pretty positive. It has become more affordable to take on a mortgage with um, all of the changes we were talking about earlier. Mm. Those economies, uh, if we look at their uh, unemployment rates um, and then you know their trajectories for household income and, and gross debt product, that sort of thing, they look very solid. These are both um, parts of the country where the unemployment rate is sitting close to 4%. So they're effectively operating at full employment. So income, household income is there uh, and people do have an ability to service their mortgages. Um, and and so that doesn't suggest that we're in bubble territory. So I'll put another way, if we look at, say, um, Ireland and, and the UK and some of the other economies just prior to the financial crisis that saw the biggest property market corrections, it did look like there were problems there because we had issues around uh, impairment rates and people not being able to pay their mortgage and, and those very overinflated values creating problems in the banking sector. And we don't have that here. There aren't any signs in the data that we can see right now that we have to be concerned about those uh, sorts of shifts taking place. So if we're thinking of a bubble as being risk and, um, and trying to identify those risks, hard to see them right now. But okay. um, certainly true that obviously prices are high. We've had robust growth in the recent past. And that's why I think going forward, 
once we get a sort of more of a normalization on the the sort of the coming off the bottom of the cycle i think we'll see fairly subdued increases in prices because they will be constrained by income growth and some of those fundamentals as we go through the medium term okay and one last part in related to this question he said london's cheaper than sydney you know you're a, a girl who knows london better than me how does Sydney house prices compare to London prices? I think it depends on where you look in London. Um, you can certainly find some very expensive property in London, um, at least as much as you can find expensive property in uh, in Sydney. So uh, I think that's probably another important point to make, right? Uh, we talk about the Sydney market or the Melbourne market being one market. It, it's not. It's a collection of different parts of cities that people might want to live in where yeah. prices for properties are wildly different. So, And that's true in London as well. And uh, so you can find some beautiful property here, but you can also find some very nice places to live in London too. All right, Sarah. Well, I, I'm going to conclude that you were supporting me rather than Phil. I'll pass it on to him. Sarah Hunter, BIS Oxford Economics, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Adrian, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. So explain to us who Charter Hall is. Okay, Charter Hall is an ASX-listed uh, property fund manager. We've been on the stock exchange for many years now. Um, our uh, mantra is to find good quality properties and provide funds for our um, wholesale investors or large institutional investors yep. uh, and our retail investors to access high quality property uh, for the market. Okay. so. You've got listed and unlisted uh, vehicles that people can invest in, right? Yes. So why don't we start with the listed first? What, what are the listed uh, products? Okay, so you can invest in Charter Hall, which is the manager, uh, and we're separately listed under the ASX code CHC. Mm. Then we offer three listed retail REITs um, that cover the CLW, the Long Whale REIT, mm. uh, and that's a diversified portfolio of property looking at long-term leases to quality covenants. Mm. Uh, we have the C CHC uh, Retail uh, Trust, mm. which is focusing on convenience retail centres. And then we have the uh, CQE, which is the Charter Hall Social Infrastructure Trust, which is the largest owner of childcare centres. Mm. And it also has a wider mandate now to invest in social infrastructure and recently mm. bought a, a bus terminal lease back to the Brisbane City Council for 20 years. Okay, and I believe you bought Telstra exchanges as well. Absolutely. So, well, uh, what 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 pro is that in? Okay, that's in a, a couple of our funds. Because yeah. one of the benefits of Charter Hall is we have unlisted funds that are backed by institutional investors. Yeah. We have unlisted funds that mum and dads can invest in, yeah. and then we have our listed REITs as well, which are listed on the ASX. So, yeah. uh, we bought the Tel the Telstra exchanges for seven hundred million dollars in a joint venture with Telstra. It was yeah. a sale and leaseback. Uh, and that's gone into a couple of our funds, including the Long Whale uh, REIT, the CLW that's listed on the ASX. Okay. So if someone just wanted to be in a, a single property, do any of your funds have just like one property so people can actually go and see it and invest in? No, Charter Hall doesn't do uh, single asset yeah. um, funds for the mum and dad market. Yeah. Our view is that we try to build a diversified portfolio yeah. of uh, properties. So... At the moment, we've got four retail funds for the mum and dad market. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one is the 
the direct office fund that yep. owns a high quality portfolio of both CBD office and suburban office properties, PFA Office Trust, which owns uh, a broad based uh, portfolio of uh, office properties. We have the industrial fund DIF4, uh, which owns uh, a broad portfolio of uh, industrial property. Uh, and we have the consumer staples fund, which is investing in a range of uh, convenience-based retail. So there's uh, a broad cross-section of uh, product there to meet the, the needs of the investor. So if someone goes to your website and, and runs through the various products uh, that you have, have either listed or unlisted, they get a rough idea of what lies inside those particular Absolutely. products? Absolutely. Yeah. We, we have on our website um, all the properties that are there. Um, we, we list the tenants, uh, we list the weighted average lease expiry, which is very important in this uh, yeah. era where everyone's focused on income and the security of income. So typically most of our unlisted funds that are available to the, the mum and dad market uh, have uh, whales or weighted average lease expiries of circa 10 years. Um, so that means that the, the tenant is likely to be there for 10 years. Absolutely. Okay. So you get, and with generally fixed increases in rent. So over the course of... Uh, investing in those funds, the security of in income is absolutely paramount yeah. to us. And what's the typical kind of yield that comes out of a, those sort of funds? Uh, for instance, our uh, DIF4 fund, which is our industrial fund um, that has 10 properties, the yield on that at the moment is around 6.2%. Yep. Uh, and our PFA office fund that just recently bought a 50% interest in a uh, building in Macquarie Park that's 73% uh, leased to the New South Wales State Government. Brand well, they're, new not building. Going, they're not going they're anywhere. They're not going anywhere. And, and, that's, uh, and that's the important point, yeah. that the solidity of the tenants are critically important, particularly if a recession comes along. Absolutely. And yeah. that's that's what we, uh, it's all about resilient income yeah. uh, and the quality of the tenant covenant, because at the end of the day, we'll have cycles, um, prices will go up and down. Yeah. But in a, a low interest rate environment where um, people aren't getting much money in the bank, yeah. it's very important that that security of income and knowing that every quarter the distribution is going to be able be there, yeah. uh, and that's what we. Focus so the one on. with seventy three percent tenancy of a state a state government department, what's that one called? Uh, that's uh, in two funds. So we put half of it in the CLW fund, which is the listed REIT, yep. uh, and it's half of it is in the uh, PFA uh, office fund. Okay, and what kind of expected return do you have on those? Uh, so the PFA office fund uh, has a current uh, distribution yield of around 7%. Okay. Uh, and being in the listed market, um, uh, the... CLW is looking at an operating earnings yield at the moment of about 5.2%. Okay. If someone wants to go into the listed product, well, it's, you're just governed by the minimum that is accepted the, by the, the stock Your market. broker, absolutely. Right. What's your broker? But if the unlisted one, that's when you guys would determine the minimum contribution. Yeah. So what's the Typically $20,000. Okay. So it's very yeah. accessible. Very accessible. Yeah. Uh, they're uh, open daily, so we can take money... Uh, every day, yeah. they've got daily unit pricing in them. They have um, limited uh, withdrawals every um, six months, mm. uh, and then every five years there's a major liquidity review which allows people the opportunity to redeem their, their capital um, if they want. So um, they're exposed over the course of the fund to a growing portfolio of property, mm. but at the same time, um, we do recognise from time to time people do need liquidity. Okay, and, and, and talk about the, the Charter Hall um, product that is like the overarching um, company that's listed on the stock yeah. exchange. Does it reflect basically the success of all the unlisted and other listed products? Absolutely. So 
the Charter Hall has about $35 billion in funds under management now. Absolutely. And that comes from a mixture of both superannuation funds, global pension funds, uh, and then from the, uh, the listed market through those three uh, REITs that mm. I mentioned earlier, and then through the, the mum and dad market. Mm. We've got about $5 billion, uh, invested through our uh, Charter Hall Direct business, which is focused on that, um, that Okay, market. so imagine that someone watching this has never, ever even thought about getting into property the indirect way, effectively, yep. by using you guys. Is there anything else you think they should know? I think at the end of the day, it's all about being comfortable with liquidity, mm. uh, understanding that if you're investing in unlisted property, you're taking a long-term investment. Mm. Um, the second thing is to look at the quality of the covenant. It's absolutely critical to understand what is driving that income uh, into the fund. That's basically uh, the, the rules of engagement. The rules of, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, who are they going to be there in six months, 12 months, five, 10 years time and be able to pay the, the rent? Uh, the, the quality of the property, uh, because more and more tenants are looking for high quality property. Uh, where to go, sustainability of the property is very important, the wellness, the amenity inside the property. Um, mm. All of our uh, major tenants now want uh, amenity in their buildings, uh, and it's not just having a cafe at the bottom, it's the end of trip facilities, um, showers, bike racks, that sort of thing yeah. down in the, uh, the basement. Uh, and fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's, it's looking at the market you're in. So the markets move mm. uh, back and forward, uh, and being comfortable with the location of the property uh, and what sector it's in, because at the moment we're seeing retail not performing as well yeah. as industrial and the office markets, yep. uh, and just being comfortable with, with the exposure that you're taking. Yeah. Um, do you guys ever sell a major property and that has an impact on the distribution that comes through? Um, no, we are actively curating our portfolio, so that means that we are looking at both buying uh, and selling assets. Um, we're not afraid to sell an asset mm. if we believe that it's we've maximised the yeah. return from it. And the it. capital gain is and extraordinary. The cap and uh, you, you need to do that mm. because buildings that you bought five, ten years ago um, now it may have come to their useful life. Mm. Um, you're always looking at how you can better position the portfolio for the future income stream going forward. So, Great stuff. Thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. So that's Adrian Harrington from Charter Hall. Susan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Now, last time I talked to you, you scared the pants off me. Oh dear. And um, it was when you made the revelation that one in five people who used to get loans weren't getting loans. And that was probably over a year ago. Um, and that, that's when I realised that the home lending restrictions was going to be a serious economic problem, which of course we're seeing now because the economy is not doing as well as some people thought. Has that changed? No. Oh no, well you're scaring the pants off I, me again. I, I think what's, there are a couple things that are different. Yeah. First of all, um, the processes of the banks are a little bit better. It's still some, some lenders still take 10 days to pick up a file, yeah. but the process is getting a bit smoother. Brokers are now cognizant of what it is that makes, 
they need to make sure is in the package to ensure that the a customer gets, gets through the process as quickly as possible. I also think that they can warn customers now earlier saying, you know, you're going to have to prepare and get mortgage fit mm. before we go through and do this application. I'm sorry, I don't think yours is going to get through. So they can go away and look at their spending and some mm. of the other things. Um, I don't believe that the responsible lending pendulum will swing, swing wildly back. We have made a step change to a new level of lending criteria and mm. I don't expect it to go back. Yeah, so all those people out there, and there are not many of them, but there, there is a group of people who, who are so stressed about the banks being so irresponsible with their lending. The, the, the fear that this new house price recovery might lead to irresponsible lending again, you, you can allay their fears, can you? I, I don't think they need to worry about that. But I understand where you're coming from. Mm. Some of those fears are looking at like a 2% or a 3% of the population, and they're projecting that on the entire Australian population yeah. that wants to go and borrow money, who actually might just actually be very responsibly borrowing. Mm. Let's give them the benefit of the yeah, doubt. Yeah, let's do that. Let's <laughs> do that. Um, the house price recovery. Yep. Um, I know it's not your... your exclusive beat but you must have a, have a view on it because it probably does determine who shows up to your organizations looking for loans. Do you think the house prices are recovering? Yes I think the, the data shows us that the house prices are recovering a little bit hmm. in Sydney and in Melbourne. I don't want to say across all of Australia. I no. think Darwin and Perth are still seeing some some troubles there. Hmm. Um, I, I do think it's a bit early to tell because from what I understand the listings don't look like they've gone up as much. Mm. So you're seeing a demand and there's not maybe necessarily enough supply. Mm. So I'm not the economist no. but um, I would say that if you had more supply perhaps that price wouldn't be going up as sharply. Okay. Um, are you in the camp, and I think you are but I asked a question, are you in the camp that the Royal Commission was very unfair on mortgage brokers? I would say unfair on intermediaries, mm. um, mortgage brokers being one of those intermediaries. They were supposed to be the bad behavior of the banks and I can't actually tell which one of those laws that they've given us the list of the laws that they're working on and none of those seem to be geared at the banks. Mm. So they seem to have given more money to APRA I guess to turn the screws on the bank and that's the way in which they've done that. Mm. Uh, I do think it was a little bit unfair on mortgage brokers. My theory is that, that perhaps there was a, a bias there and they asked the questions to confirm the bias mm. that the brokers mm. were perhaps placing their customers just to get the highest commission. Mm. I actually don't think from the, at, at a ground level, knowing the brokers and what they do, mm. I just don't believe that they do that. No. Now, of course I'm going to say that's what people are going to say. Yeah, I mean, but you're saying a minority might be bad beha yeah. behaviours, but I reckon it's probably a minority of accountants, lawyers, doctors, plumbers, even economists who might behave badly. I think that's probably true and mm. I don't believe that mm. it's indicative of the group overall. And, I, and I've, as I was listening to you I was thinking well if my mortgage broker is getting a bigger commission sending me to you know XYZ bank but my home loan goes from four and a half percent to 2.9 percent I don't care. I don't care what he's paid as long as I'm better off. I actually if when you talk to the customers you're correct. Yeah. You're correct, and they don't necessarily come in and say, I want to borrow responsibly. <laughs> what they say is, I found a house and I really want to know if I can afford it. Because yeah. it's about buying the house. It's mm. not about, 
you know, that whole thing surrounding the And banks determine who can afford a house, not mortgage brokers. I think that's true. The mm. mortgage brokers are there to say, I know the market, mm. I know where your particular fact, fact pattern, your income type will best fit in for you to achieve your goal. Mm. And that's really what the mortgage broker does, is just drive, take them along the little journey from where they are to the bank that will serve their needs. Mm. What do you think of the new first home buyer scheme, uh, which effectively yes. helps younger people, well, first home buyers get deposits? I think it's... Um, it's interesting. First of all, I think it's fascinating that it's sort of first come, first serve. Mm, yeah. So that doesn't seem... 10,000 a year. Yes, so, so, that, so that would imply that they... It, it may not make a permanent change in the market mm. if it's only just a few people that get it, first mm. of all. Second of all, I understand that there's some confusion as how that's actually going to work with mortgage insurance. Mm. So I'm not quite sure how that ends up working out in the long run. Mm. I've kind of presumed that the government must be going to yes, take responsibility absolutely. for the insurance aspect Absolutely. Of it. So I'm not quite sure how that mm. then works with mortgage insurance. Mm. Or if, if Does that mean that you, you don't need it because if something goes wrong, the taxpayer is going to say, oh, well, we'll take the role that Genworth used to play. I, I, I'm is a little it, bit concerned that that might be what happened. I don't know enough yeah. about the detail to know yeah. that, to be honest. Okay. okay. Yeah, that is one. And, and, probably and I'm not sure that it's available as available as no. it should be. No, okay. It's a good question to ask. Anyway. It is an excellent question. All right. Now, um, have you seen any evidence? And this, this is a question I haven't prepared you for, but you know, you know, you okay. um, Have you seen any evidence that young people are using the super saver scheme? You know, where they actually put money in, grow it over two or three years, and they can draw thirty thousand each out to buy a home. I'm, I'm sure somebody's using it. Yeah. But no, our evidence is not that it's not um, mm. widely being used. Yeah. I think it's a good idea. I think it is a great idea. Yeah. It's just not because it makes them save. Mm. So it's not like you're giving it to them. In a good tax yes. environment Absolutely. with higher returns and term deposits. Absolutely. Mm. And it gives them an opportunity to maximise it, but the, the behaviour is the same. Mm. They still have to save to okay. do it. Okay. Now, um, I want to ask you, I'll ask you, do you think that the housing market's improving? at this point in time? Improving meaning the prices are going up? Is that your definition no, of improving? No, the, pe the a, people want to buy homes. Um, the position of being able to get a loan compared to, say, 12 months ago, is it getting better or that so? Um, I, I think they can borrow a little more money mm. because the rates are going to be lower, so yeah. that makes a difference. And the but if, cap but, but, but if the house isn't there to buy, yeah. then I'm not sure that it's improved the, the market. Because the whole point is to buy a house yeah. and have the house there. And remember, the prices are still yeah. internationally high. Okay. Yeah. And, and you, you made me think of another good question to ask, which I presume is a good question, is has all these concerns about apartments in Sydney in particular, you know, apartments cracking up, cladding issues, do you think that's actually hosed down the interest in apartments? No, because I think that the apartments are at the price point that works for most people. Mm. So I think if you're sitting here between I'm going to rent or I'm going to buy an apartment, but I can't afford a house, mm. I can either rent or buy an apartment. Yeah. Because the price point is there, I think they find their way through that. Yeah. And I guess people who, who want to buy something, get on a property ladder, they would make sure, A, there's no cladding problem. 
Well, at least and B, it, there's no cracks. Well, as you know, of course, education is the best thing. Yeah. Now that it's been in the papers, mm. they'll have the opportunity to ask those questions, which is by far the best result. Okay. Well, the next obvious question is, what's the outlook for Mortgage Choice? You're the CEO. I am. I think the outlook for Mortgage Choice is good. Yeah. We've, got, um, we've gone through um, the Royal Commission. We've had this miracle re, um, election result in May. Mm. The people are back out oh, of the market. Because they, they're gearing right sort of... Yeah, they're not being political saying you love ScoMo more than Bill. You're saying all those property implications have gone away. Yeah, so the property implications are off the table. The Broker Commission implications are off the table. So we've got a network of people who are so happy to be back at work yeah. and busy generating business and making money for their small businesses. Mm. And that's got to be great for Mortgage Choice. Okay. Now, what's a really good question I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? I thought you were going to ask me about the ACCC. Well, there you go. See? I'm price glad. inquiry. Okay. Tell us about that. I think they're going to find that pricing is opaque. Mm. which is what they found last time mm. so and what they found the time before that. Okay, <laughs> and so this is the pricing of loans by yes. banks? Yes. And what do you think they want to find? I think what they want to find is they want to find some miracle solution whereby there is a mechanism for the people who are on in the back book mm. and have a much higher rate mm to get them onto more of a, 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 a current rate, mm. a more current rate. Because 20 years ago, everyone paid SBR, yeah. standard variable rate. Yeah. Then what, about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, people started getting discounts. Mm. And then as we've progressed, the discounts get bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. So now you can get a discount as much as one and a half to two. They're quite sizable off mm. the SBR, depending yeah. on your 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 loan to value ratio and the size of your loan and some other factors. Yeah, well, are you a great customer spends all exactly. the money in the bank? Of course, some of those people don't get the discount, but that but some right. do. But but the point is, is if you go back just maybe a, a year or two ago, probably pretty good. Mm. But if you haven't really looked at it in seven or eight years, mm. then you probably do have the opportunity to get a better rate without a whole lot of work. That's Even the, without the ACCC, you just you, have to go in and say, I want a better rate or I'm switching. And if you're not happy doing that, you can probably ask your broker to do it. Yeah. The brokers will, will call up and say, I know what the market is right now. Come right. on, give my client this rate or I'm gonna, I'm gonna refinance them to a person who will. Hmm. So there's a great opportunity to do that. And I think with three rate falls mm. in a very short period of time, people are very focused mm. on what the rate is. So it's actually a good time to do something about mm. that. And, and is it kind of like, in a perfect world, it'd be lovely that everyone gets charged the same low price. But does, does that mean that the ACCC will start making lawyers charge everyone the same price and financial planners the same price? Every business in the world operates, many businesses operate, like for example, David Jones. What the suit they sell at the beginning of the season is much more expensive than the same suit sold at the end of the season. Does that person come in and get a rebate? Yeah, I, I, I take your point, yeah. but I'm, I'm with you a little bit. Um, I'd like for the process of figuring out the pricing to be clear because I want the, the consumer to be educated and if mm. that's what comes out of this, that's great. Yeah, okay. But on the other hand, if you set one price, mm. then you've got the group whose credit is better Mm. not getting the advantage anymore. Mm. And, I, and they earned that. Mm. They earned that by good behavior. They earned that by saving that money and having a lower LVR. Mm. Why not let them have it? So that's the part that I, I, I am concerned that will come out of this, mm. is that they want you to advertise a price and then that's the only price. Yeah. 
And I think that takes away from the opportunity for people to be rewarded for good credit rating. Yeah, that's a good answer, by the way. Very good answer. You're good at this, aren't you? It's a lot of fun to do. <laughs> Susan Mitchell, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Insights into the Australian home loan market with Susan Mitchell.